They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that is here to sprinkle a little magic dust on the situation. Here is the captain. This magic dust has my allergies going nuts. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be featuring Instant Snowman from the good folks over at Forked Creek Brewery in Defiance, Ohio. Instant Snowman is a New England-style hazy IPA with insanely juicy notes of pineapple, papaya, guava, and a little lactose. And as the name suggests, it's a great way to instantly cool down on a hot day. Instant Snowman, garage grade 4 out of five bottle caps and we have some cheers to our good friends for helping us out with this week's shows first up a cheers to christina from the greatest small town ever chapel hill texas and a big shout to christy in bucksport maine and last but certainly not least we throw our tall cans in the air for megan in cleveland that's Cleveland, ohio everybody we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and clicked on the donate button yeah b-w-u-r-u-n beer run if you need more true crime garage in your earballs check out our bonus show called off of the record it's on stitcher premium and you can find that link at truecrimegarage.com colonel that is enough of the business all right everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime We cover these kinds of stories from time to time, and it never gets any easier. Stories that involve the senseless murder of children. Last week, we told the true crime tale of an innocent little child, walking to church no less, taken off the streets just a couple of blocks from her home, and then executed. Her body discovered just a few hours later in a ravine and a forest preserve. What kind of monster could shoot a little girl in the head? Then just one day later, in two states away, two girls walking home, one of them is grabbed and stolen in the night, just four houses away from her own. She met a similar fate as the first girl, was found just a short drive from where she was abducted. What kind of monster could kidnap one sister in front of the other and in plain view of so many houses only to leave her body in the cold, dark woods. 
The answer in both cases is the kind of monster who was left to walk around, a free man. While early on it seems investigators were looking for a connection between the two murders, but after a few days, they failed to find one. And so the two homicide investigations parted and went their separate ways. Police in Chicago landed on the theory that a local man who likely committed several similar crimes was probably responsible for the murder of the little girl who never made it to church that Saturday morning. In Ohio, the sheriff and the people of the tiny town of Paulding could never quite agree. Was it a local man or someone driving through who spotted two sisters walking in the dark and then forever took one away? The individuals responsible for these heinous acts never paid for these crimes. Not these crimes, anyway. Now today, we continue to look for these monsters. Because even if they themselves are dead, justice still has not been served. On that terrible weekend back in November of 1960, evil won twice. This is True Crime Garage. Last week, we told you about the horrifying abduction and murder of two girls, Gloria Kowalowicz in Chicago, who was just nine years old, and also Nancy Eagleson, a 14-year-old from Paulding, Ohio. Early on, the two murder investigations shared the same suspect. This was 17-year-old Robert Lee Stovall, who was questioned about both murders extensively. This after he was arrested in Indiana, found by police there sleeping in a stolen car. The car he was found in was reported stolen from the Chicago area. Police wondered if Robert had stolen the car and killed the girl in Chicago before leaving the state and while traveling through Ohio, spotted Nancy and was also responsible for her murder, all before turning around and heading back to Illinois. Police determined that Robert Stoville lived in Jacksonville, Illinois, and was recently released from the state mental hospital there. This, of course, did not go along with Robert Lee Stovall's story, who first told officers that he lived in Montrose, Michigan, and was a mechanic for the General Motors Corporation. When he was arrested for the stolen vehicle, the state trooper discovered bloodstains on the inside of Stovall's coat and on his trousers. And that is how he found himself involved in not one, but two homicide investigations. Robert Lee Stovall had a lot of miles on him for a 17-year-old. He looked a little too rugged and too dirty for 17, and frankly probably could have passed for 23 or 24 years of age. He was described as a goateed beatnik type, and he told officers what they called fantastic stories about his whereabouts that weekend. He told police that the car was not stolen, and in fact he had borrowed it from his sister, or maybe it was his sister's boyfriend. But of course it wasn't his sister or even her boyfriend's vehicle. The car was in fact a stolen car. He told police that his clothing became bloodstained in a tavern brawl in Detroit. Investigators took note of Stovall having been a patient at the mental hospital and described him as a psychopathic liar. Stovall's clothing was sent to the Chicago Crime Laboratory for examination. Robert Lee Stovall was charged with auto larceny, but he quickly and quietly fades from the newspapers and both murder investigations without the public being told exactly why. But we can look at these cases and arrive at some possible conclusions. Last week here in the garage, the intention was to solely focus on and explore the Nancy Eagleson murder, the Ohio case, in just two episodes. However, Gloria's case is a part of the story, and again still unsolved. 
So that warranted further examination. To tell a more complete story, we decided to go to four episodes and take a really good look at both cases. This week, we will really be focusing in on Nancy Eagleson's case. So why would the authorities move on from Robert Lee Stovall in both murder investigations? Well, consider the evidence. Stovall is arrested about five miles east of LaPorte, Indiana. So proximity doesn't really put him up front and center on either murder. Or does it? But the car he was found sleeping in was reported stolen from Chicago. So the car puts him at the center of Gloria's case. Correct. But in Gloria's case, they also have a decent amount of evidence. Remember that they have a finger and or palm print. We say either because it was reported both ways. From all that I have reviewed, I believe that it's likely that they had both a fingerprint and a partial palm print. This was found on the victim's purse. There was a tire track found at the scene where Gloria's body was recovered. We know the blood-stained clothes were being examined, and Stovall's shoes were sent off for analysis as well. They were checking mud from the shoes. Law enforcement knows he's from Illinois, and now he's saying he got in this bar fight in Detroit. Well, he would have to go through Ohio to get to Detroit. Exactly. So with this evidence, they would have ways of not necessarily clearing Stovall, but they may have ways of moving on from him, from Gloria's murder, because of the evidence. Now, one real troubling thing about Stovall being a good suspect in Nancy Eagleson's case is the timing of everything. The captain just pointed out that the car was stolen in Illinois, and then he says he was up in Detroit. He would have had to go through Ohio at some point, and unfortunately, Northwest Ohio is where he would need to travel through and Nancy Eagleson was murdered in Northwest Ohio. But the troubling thing for him to be a good suspect in Nancy's case, again, is the timing. The reports are not really clear here on what time Robert Lee Stovall was picked up by police in Indiana, just that it was Sunday night. Well, we know that Nancy was abducted at approximately 7.40 to 7.50 p.m. that Sunday. Right. I'm not really wondering about what time he was arrested there because Laporte is not terribly far from Paulding, but time and distance alone could potentially eliminate Stovall from having committed the Nancy Eagleson homicide. To give a little more perspective, depending on current day routes from Paulding to five miles east of Laporte, where he was picked up, it's about a two hour and 30 minute to closer to three hours drive. So if he's picked up 30 minutes, one hour or 90 minutes after Nancy was abducted, it makes it very difficult, nay impossible, for Stovall to be responsible for Nancy's murder. The other thing, too, is he tells the story of being involved in a bar fight in Detroit, Michigan. And I know they are calling him a liar, and he's been telling these, air quotes, fantastic stories. But is there a chance that upon further checking, law enforcement is able to determine that, yes, he was in a bar fight in Michigan? Why or whatever the cause, police in both cases moved on from Robert Lee Stovall. Well, just because he's a known psychopathic liar doesn't mean that he's a psychopathic killer. Why or whatever the cause, police in both cases moved on from Robert Lee Stovall, so will we as well. So the next item on our Nancy Eagleson investigation timeline is a strange one, Captain. This is when it is reported that, quote, authorities admitted their investigation of the slaying of Nancy Eagleson was pretty well at a standstill. Note the date of this statement. This is on November 16th. Nancy was killed on the 13th. The body was found in the small hours of the 14th. How are we already at a standstill? Right. Is this the sheriff telling us less than 72 hours into the investigation that the case has already gone cold? Or maybe he's telling us that he's incompetent. You have to wonder, is this comment more in direct relationship to connecting the two cases that we've already discussed? Well, that's a good point. The Kowalowicz case in Chicago and the Paulding case of Nancy Eagleson 
and then the suspect, Robert Lee Stovall, altogether. Because he's in the news quite a bit for those first two days. He fades from the news, and it's at this same time that we have the sheriff, this is Sheriff Keeler in Paulding, Ohio, saying the case is pretty much at a standstill. Well, even if this is where you're at, because, look, you know, there's that show. You just brought it up off air. The show, the first 48, the first 48 being the most important. Well, yeah, I guess they're really important in this case. But even if you came to a standstill after a couple days, you don't need to address this to the media. Yeah, this is something that you write in your notes to not say Yeah, to the newspaper reporters. And what's funny. Do not tell them. We don't know what we're doing. We got nothing in our investigation. And what's interesting, too, is the articles themselves are quite short, so there's no room for explanation as to what that statement means, what it's in direct relationship to. And I'm sure that's the trouble, right? When you when you speak to somebody else mm-hmm. and you're talking about an investigation or you're talking about something as important as this, you are then relying on them to understand that information correctly and then deliver it properly to the audience. And who knows? Sheriff Keeler may have gone into great description and great detail about what he meant and what he was talking about, and those words just failed to make it to the articles. Right. So we got to look at it and say, well, maybe Keeler did know what he was doing. Maybe the person that wrote the article painted him in a poor light or didn't know what they were doing. All right, Captain. So should we do a review of the timeline simply because it's been a few days since most people have listened to Nancy's case? Or should we do a review of the evidence first? I'm going with what's behind door number one. Let's start with the timeline. I like it. I like it. I'll tell you what. Mm -hmm. Why don't we do kind of both at the same time, considering that we just pointed out not too long ago, how the timeline can be evidence itself. Well, that wasn't the options you gave me. Right? So, captain approved, dude abides, let's move on. Whatever you want. The timeline is as such. Mm-hmm. November 13th, 1960, around 2 p.m., Nancy and her sister leave home to see a movie. After this movie, the girls stopped for a soft drink and then went to the bowling alley before heading home on foot. This is in the 7 p.m. hour. Closer to 8 p.m., the two girls notice a car is following them. The car stops to ask them if they would like a ride. And we know that Nancy, the older sister, who's 14, explains to the driver, no, we are getting close to our home. We are only a few houses away. Mm -hmm. Between 7.40 p.m. and approximately 7.50 p.m., Nancy is abducted by the man driving the car right in front of her sister, Cheryl. Cheryl is very little at this time. She's only five years old. She says that the man threw Nancy into the back seat of his car. Let's examine this. This is very bizarre to me. We know from covering so many of these cases that the perpetrator, especially in an abduction, what they want to do is control their victim. This man does not want Nancy to escape. This man wants to control her. Yet, according to our surviving witness... The man threw her into the back seat of the car. And of course, he's going to have to drive the car from the front seat. This complicating the situation of trying to control her as he's fleeing from the abduction scene. Well, it's possible that there's somebody in the back seat that she didn't see. That is one thing that I always thought there. Could there be somebody that was maybe lying down or concealing themselves in some manner and helping and assisting And this wasn't just a single perpetrator, that there was more than one person involved. The other thing, too, that we also have to consider is this is a lot of things happening very quickly. Cheryl explained to us, us two garage guys here, that she was already afraid when she felt the presence of the vehicle following them. And so maybe the memory's not spot on. Maybe it's not 100%. That is her story. That's what she stuck to for all of these years. So we just have to believe it. But she was five. She was five years old. And again, terrified at the situation. Yeah, and you can't blame her if her memory isn't correct, if she doesn't remember every detail. My my thought would be, is this a two-door car or a four-door car? The witness, Cheryl, she says that it was a four-door vehicle. 
because that makes more sense on tossing her in the in the back because it'd be easier to actually do that. Anybody with a two door car knows that you'd have to lift up the seat and you know move things around just to get into the back seat. And maybe has he set up this situation so that his car is kind of rigged like a police car, where if you put somebody in the back seat, they can't open the doors anyway. Right. I mean, we know that other perpetrators, other killers have outfitted their vehicles or rigged them up so that the passenger or the victim or the abducted person is at a significant disadvantage once they are inside the vehicle. Ted Bundy altered his vehicles in many different ways. Right. Edmund Kemper did something as simple as taking a little chapstick a little, you know, one of the little chapstick things and wedging it down in the door handle. So when you tried to pull open the door using the handle, it wouldn't go all the way. You couldn't pull it open all the way and get, you know, allowing the vehicle door to open. And maybe this killer had a destination spot because like we know she was found not that far from where she was abducted. So was it, let me put her in the back seat. I'll drive as fast as I can to that spot. And then I get out of the car to control her. So after midnight on the 14th, this is around 2 a.m., Nancy's body is found by hunters. Now let's pause and hone in on this for a minute, right? The abduction location was in a housing area of State Route 111. The spot where Nancy was taken from was well lit. She was abducted in full view of seven houses. The state route runs between the Indiana state line and the city of Defiance, Ohio. Most of this route is a rural two-lane highway and passes through both farmland and residential properties. The body recovery location is a rural wooded area near Junction, Ohio. So Nancy's body was found by hunters approximately 100 feet off of Paulding County Road 176. This is just seven miles from Nancy's home and the abduction location. Right. And as we explained last week, this road takes a couple of curves, but it's pretty much a straight shot. If you stayed on Route 111 and just didn't turn left to continue on to Route 111 because it cuts there and it goes left, if you just went straight ahead, you're now on Paulding County Road 176. So it's essentially the same road. Now, what is weird here, Captain, is I walked the abduction scene with Cheryl, and she explained everything as she remembered it from that horrible night back in 1960. Right. Then afterward, she got in her car, I got in mine, and I followed her to where the body was recovered. And I had a friend riding shotgun with me, and we had two very different opinions on the distance between the two locations. I thought that it was a very quick drive. I was like shockingly surprised at how quick it seemed like we went from abduction site to where the body was later recovered. Right. So, so quick and such a short distance that I was really surprised that somebody that was committing such a horrible crime and that would want to get away with it would, would not have driven further or to a more, this is a a secluded location, but again, because you're essentially on the exact same road, it doesn't feel so secluded. The person that was riding shotgun with me thought that it seemed like a very long drive. So two very different perspectives. And my friends said that they were just picturing themselves being in the back seat of this criminal, this murderer's car, mm-hmm. and being scared, being terrified. And they felt that the minutes felt like much more. Well, question for you. Were you talking to your friend as you did this drive? Because briefly, I was more looking around and trying to make some observations. I was going to say, maybe your story was a little long-winded, and they're like, oh, man, this is a long, this is a long trip. But it was as we got close, like, I was unsure of the exact location of where they recovered the body. Right. And when I saw the brake lights come on, and I saw Cheryl, her vehicle stop in front of me and park to the side of the road, that's that's when it occurred to me. I was like, oh snap we're there already this is 
that was incredibly fast. And I had seen it and reviewed it prior on a map. Right. So I knew we weren't going a great distance, but it just seemed like a like a two minute drive. And according to Cheryl's statement, when the guy took off with Nancy in the back seat, he speeds off. So this dude was likely traveling much faster than I was. Again, I was a little shocked that that the perpetrator didn't go further. But again, as you pointed out last week, Captain, there could be another crime scene that we are unaware of. He could have, in fact, taken her to another location and then brought her and and disposed of her in the area where she was found. Looking at the scene and, and being told what I was told from the family as far as what they found back in 1960, it looks to me like my gut feeling says no, that he abducted Nancy, rushed off to that spot. That spot may have been predetermined, may not have been predetermined by our killer. But the way that they described the what would have been probably tire tracks and they found paint on a tree stump that was located near her body. They believed at the time that the paint may have come from the perpetrator's vehicle Mm. that he didn't see the tree stump. We're talking, there are no lights out there even today, right? Let alone 1960. And that he likely didn't see the tree stump and either hit it with his vehicle, brushed up against it, somehow leaving paint from his vehicle to the tree stump. One thing that's a pisser here, though, my Mm -hmm. friend, is nobody seems to be able to recall what color paint it was. I was told it might be this color. It might be that color. I'm choosing to leave out both of those colors because nobody seems to be certain as to what color it could have been. We have our witness, Cheryl, who said that she believed it was either a black car or a dark green car. Now, neither of those colors match up with the color of paint that people thought it could have been back in 1960. It definitely seems like a possible misstep in this investigation. But if it's seven miles away and this murderer is driving high speeds, it's going to take him less than seven minutes to get there. So I would go with you on the idea that it's a, that's a shorter ride. But again, we don't know if they went somewhere else. Let's go back to, we're throwing the victim in the car. We don't know if there's anybody in the car to control her. Is it possible that she started fighting him off and he had to pull over? Very likely that he lost control of the victim and he had to pull over to straighten out the situation and again that would mean that this was a location that he didn't determine in advance we know that criminals are typically you know nobody likes when i say this i don't know why but uh i i find that the majority of criminals typically are rather dumb and who knows this could have been an impulsive act he sees two girls walking alone he's not really planned anything out grabs one of them drives off with the intention of going to a specific location. But as you said, she starts to fight him off. He starts to lose control of the situation and says, Oh, I got to stop the car right here. This is one of those crimes where you review it and you can argue five, six, seven points of reason that say this was a premeditated, well thought out crime. And then on the very flip of all those items that you just list there, You could say, well, that points to an impulsive crime, a crime that wasn't really planned out. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. 
IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back, mates. Cheers to the people in the front, to the back, the side. He's back. I'm back. People Tall are laying on the ground. In the air. Pants on the ground, pants mm. on the ground, looking like a fool. Or looking very cool. 
That's yeah. what I thought. Or, like, or maybe you should be arrested if your pants are. I was looking very cool with my on pants the ground. on the ground. Let's continue on this uh, timeline and the set of evidence. While we're going through this evidence in this timeline, I want to make sure that we take a little bit of a stop here to kind of hone in on what Cheryl's description was of the man. Now, one thing that I did not appreciate in my research of this case, the Sheriff Keeler, he's a weird dude because I've asked a lot of people about Sheriff Keeler and Remember, he is the main investigator here. He's he's leading the investigation. He was out searching for Nancy that night that she was abducted. And it's a mixed bag, man. Half the people you talk to tell you that Sheriff Keeler was the greatest man that ever lived. And that the, the town of Paulding and the county of Paulding are better for having a sheriff like him. And then there's other people that you talk to and they say it's a bit of a weasel. Yeah, squeezing the juice. A bit of a guy that you might not trust. So I think it will be fair, even though Keeler's not here to present his side of the argument, I think it will be fair to examine some of his actions throughout this investigation because we are sitting here 62 years later with an unsolved case. One thing I did not appreciate that Keeler did was the following. He said to the papers at the time, this is just days after the abduction and the murder of Nancy Eagleson, the newspapers say that Cheryl's description of the suspect is limited, though he may have been wearing glasses. In fact, a quote attributed to the sheriff at the time says, quote, we only know two things for sure. It was a man and he drove an automobile. I do not appreciate this because one thing that we do have is Cheryl claiming that the suspect wore glasses and she's not, she's not willy nilly about this. This is something she told the sheriff that night when Nancy was abducted. This is something she told her parents and everyone willing to listen. And 62 years later, she still says the man was wearing glasses. Well, and not to be silly or nitpicky here, but. This is also at dusk, so this kidnapper would not be wearing sunglasses that she would be mistaken. You know, she is saying glasses. Exactly. Somebody that's driving with glasses, to me, means somebody that probably needs glasses 24-7. Very likely. And so I don't really appreciate him taking away that one detail. I mean, that's that's a pretty vital detail if you ask me. When we say, hey, we're worried about the description we're getting from our eyewitness, we know one thing for sure. Cheryl knows one thing for sure. 100% this man that night was wearing glasses. Now, she did tell me, she said, Nick, there's a chance that he had disguised himself. Maybe he was wearing them just because he knew he was going out looking to take somebody. And that's a good point. But let's not steer away from the fact that the man was wearing glasses that night. Yeah, it could be, again, part of a disguise. We're going to wear glasses. This will throw them off the scent. But this sketch, um, we'll post it on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter. This sketch is, to me, the eyes hit you right away. Very dead eyes. Doesn't put me in the mind frame of a younger perpetrator, 17 to 20, this puts me, to, to me, late 20s, mid 30s. Yeah, you know, we have that old joke that we reference from time to time here in the garage that back in the 1960s, men either looked like two men. Either they looked like the Zodiac or they looked like Charles Manson. Yeah, this is this, this is much like more Zodiac. Zodiac. Yep. Short hair, uh, shorter hair, and the sketch we're holding in front of us has glasses on one sketch, no glasses on the other sketch. But this man is wearing a suit and tie, dressed almost in his Sunday's best. Uh, short hair. He looks like a like an ugly version of Pee Wee Herman to me. Kind of an older, uglier Pee Wee Herman. Paging Mr. Herman. And we'll put these suspect composite sketches that, to my knowledge, have never been released to the public. Which, again, is a bit of a misstep. Doesn't make any sense. It, they may have. Obviously, you know, with the case being 62 years old, we can only review so much or, or can only get our hands on certain things as some things are just certainly lost to time. 
but everything I've reviewed, everything the captains reviewed, we've not seen these being released to the public anywhere. So it's a little, if, if they have not been released, it's long overdue because you were looking for this guy. Cheryl says, this is the guy you are looking for. Now in the profile picture, the man looks a little more distinguished, a little more proper. The hair might be a little bit longer than expected when you look at the front view of the suspect. But again, we will post these on Instagram and Twitter so that you can put your own eyeballs on them and see what Cheryl says that she saw. Yeah, and that to, night. to me, they, they look like two different people. I agree. I agree. Like when I see the front view and then I flip to the profile, I, that's not exactly, it's not completely off, mm-hmm. but it's not exactly what I was picturing the profile to look like after seeing the front view. There was some evidence, and last week we kind of complained about the lack of finding tire tracks. Both situations, the abduction scene and where Nancy's body was recovered from, one would think that there would be tire tracks, and we know law enforcement are very good at looking for cars. They are very good at looking for cars and very knowledgeable about vehicles, tires, uh, vehicle lights, and things of that nature. So I think that was a misstep if, if in fact, they failed to collect those. Nowhere in the file does it say that they had any tire tracks or collected them. Again, we know that the scene where they found the body, there were a lot of people in and out of that scene. They really didn't secure the scene, but some things that were collected in this case were two pieces of a dress and a jacket with blood on them. These were Nancy's. They found a scarf, her purse, shoes, her bra, her underclothes, garter belt, a necklace. They found some of her hair on a low hanging tree branch. And here's the things that are kind of missing though. Some things that you would expect to find or have as your evidence. We know that a very thorough autopsy was conducted. However, Nowhere in the list of evidence do they say anything about fingernail clippings. Captain just brought up the fact that our victim was probably fighting this man in the vehicle, probably fighting him at the scene, the final scene, and fighting him during the course of the sexual assault. We could have very good suspect evidence underneath her fingernails. Now, just because there's no Mention of these on any evidence list doesn't mean that they never existed, but from what we can say and see today, it looks like the finger fingernails were never collected. Yeah. Another misstep. The other thing too, is we are told time and time again, that this was a rape and a murder. Well, there's no mention of semen samples, Mm -hmm. which we know in 2022 would solve this case right away. Yeah, it'd be uh, a very quick got him moment. One thing that we did have is that they believe that the type of weapon used to kill Nancy was a twenty-two caliber gun. This based off of some evidence that we find in the autopsy, where it says, quote, around the base of the brain is found a fragment of a lead-jacketed bullet. It goes into some measurements there, and it says, it is roughly arrowhead in shape, and appears to be about twenty-two caliber. So yeah, she is abducted on the thirteenth, just three days later on the sixteenth. Law enforcement is saying, "Hey, we're at a standstill." Which look, look, there was not a lot of witnesses to this crime, but you'd think in this neighborhood more people would have seen this vehicle, and maybe they could have followed more of those leads. But maybe they worked every lead that they had. And once they made these announcements to the public, maybe they thought, well, come 14th and 15th, we're going to get a ton of leads. And they just didn't. I don't like their statements. I don't think I would have put that out to the public. But maybe they thought if we put that out to the public, somebody's going to come forward to help us. Maybe if we show a little desperation, right, it will light a fire and people come forward and help us out. I agree that. Who knows what the strategy was, if there was a strategy in that statement. Again, we don't know what the sheriff told the reporter and what what didn't make it into the newspaper article. One big question, of course, when we talk about a village this small, a, a county 
with a very low population is people wanted to know, did Nancy potentially know who her killer was? Was the murder simply a way to cover up the abduction and the rape? Was the killer from outside of Paulding, Ohio, outside of the community, or was the killer somebody known to Nancy, known to the area? Was the killer, is this the killer's first or last murder? These things we don't know. So when we investigate and we look at these pieces of evidence, we have to question, do they suggest that this is a man from outside of the area or a local man? Now, one thing that was told to us from the family are two things, in my opinion, that would strongly, strongly suggest that this was, in fact, a local man that abducted and killed Nancy. The family says that on the night of the abduction, the phone lines were cut at the Eagleson home. Now, I've not seen this reported in any newspaper. I've not seen it in the police file. I've not seen it reported anywhere else. But the family has said to me that on that night, the phone lines were cut. That would suggest that this was a premeditated abduction and somebody already had started to set things into motion before Nancy was even abducted. The second, and this is one that is, you know, I want to be clear here. I'm not questioning what the Eagleson family is saying and, and sitting here going, well, do, do I believe them or do I not believe them? I, I have no reason to not believe them, but this second portion seems even more credible because this is said by several different people. More than one source says that Cheryl, the eyewitness who witnessed her sister being abducted, was almost taken in what they believe to be a botched abduction attempt that took place about three weeks after Nancy's death. According to the Eagleson family, someone tried to come in the back door of their home and grab the little girl. The lock was jimmied or the door was jammed open with a screwdriver. There was visible physical damage to the door. What a scary scene. Now, Cheryl, thankfully, was not abducted and not taken. Right. But that would strongly suggest that, hey, I've got to shut up this person. The one person that saw me do this, the one person that knows who did this, that could identify me, that could pick me out of a lineup, is still alive. And, oh, by the way, I'm a local person. I know where she lives. I'm going to go and shut her up. Yeah, or what if we're out in public and she sees me? Can she identify me? Or... Is he connected to the family somehow and knows that, hey, at a family party, she's going to see me or hear me or something might trigger her to scream bloody murder. And maybe Sheriff Keeler was a sly dog. Maybe he was a little wiser than we're giving him credit for. Maybe he you was dirty dog. Maybe he was playing coy, right? Maybe he was just posturing for the papers and as we said maybe he's acting desperate so that the public will come and help his investigation because you take that statement and then you look behind the scenes and you see that no this case was far from a standstill and in fact they wanted to see if they could extract more information from their eyewitness cheryl would be the key to finding this killer if she could tell you things like the license plate if she could tell you, give you a, a very good description of the vehicle or a better description of the perpetrator. Now, one thing that they did in an attempt to extract this information and help her to remember better is they subjected Cheryl to several hypnosis sessions. And I've taken some notes from those sessions, and these were conducted within weeks of the murder. And from her statements while under hypnosis, we learn that this is what she's remembering. The suspect's vehicle was facing the same way that the girls were traveling. One person was in the vehicle. She says the suspect was alone from what she could see. The suspect was wearing a white shirt, wearing black clothes and black glasses. He was skinny with black hair 
And when asked to give an age, she doesn't provide an age for the suspect, but she does say that he appeared to be older than my dad, older than my father. And she also says that the man was not wearing a hat. The vehicle was all one color. And she describes it as both black, but also said that she thinks that it could be green, a dark green. The lights were off, as she remembers. And she says that it was a new or newer car. It was a four-door vehicle. The black clothing that the suspect was wearing, she says, is black pants and a short coat. Black shoes, she says, not boots, black shoes. And that the man had to walk around the car. She actually says that he walked around the front of the car. And then after the abduction, in the hypnosis sessions, she's saying that after the abduction, he drove toward town. So there's some conflicting stories just within Cheryl's story itself. In some versions of her story, she says that the man pulls up, abducts Nancy, and then drives off, continuing going the direction that the girls were walking, which would be heading out of Paulding, heading away from Paulding. Under hypnosis, in one of the sessions, she says that the man actually pulled up, said something to the girls, went away, drove away from Paulding, then turns around, comes back, and then that's when he abducts Nancy. Now his vehicle's facing the opposite direction, and when he speeds off with Nancy, he is heading back into town. So that part's a little unclear, but again, we're getting one statement from her when she is awake and other statements when she's under hypnosis. But this leads to our timeline of law enforcement getting a new suspect in December. This is a weird story. This almost sounds like something out of an old movie where we have a man, his name is Virgil Johnson. And in fact, we kind of know a little bit about Virgil Johnson already. Remember we said that, Nancy and her little sister stopped off at a restaurant, a locally owned restaurant, to grab some sodas, sitting there in the restaurant, chatting with people, sipping sodas before they walk off to the bowling alley. Well, the owner of that restaurant that they stopped off to have these sodas is Virgil Johnson. So Virgil Johnson becomes a suspect, if you will, in the minds of the public. Right. Maybe not so much in the minds of the sheriff or law enforcement, But the way that this story goes is that he, Virgil Johnson, is hearing rumors that they have a suspect and the suspect is a local businessman. Well, what he does not realize for a couple of days anyway, is that that suspect is him. He is the local businessman that the public are talking about as being the killer of Nancy Eagleson. Right. But any of the places that they stopped on their walk home, people are going to say, we should look into those, those individuals. Of course. But again, we have people in town openly discussing Virgil Johnson as the man who killed Nancy Eagleson. Maybe he was a little bit of an odd duck. Well, part of this may have come from a statement that says that Virgil's wife said that she found blood on his clothing Mm. and that he explained that. So there was blood found in the back of his vehicle and there was blood found on his clothing, according to this statement. Now, the blood in the back of his car is very questionable, right? Because we talked about this last week where some people have suggested that Nancy was not killed where she was found. Some people suggest and believe that there is evidence that may point to her actually being killed in the vehicle that abducted her. Right. And then the body transported 100 feet off of the road and laid in the woods. And if that's true, that we would see a lot of blood in that vehicle. From my understanding, Virgil Johnson says, well, of course there's blood in my vehicle. I own a restaurant and I'm regularly picking up beef, you know, a big side of beef, you know, items from the butcher shop that is miles away and driving them to my restaurant. And the blood found on my clothing is from unloading these items from the car. Now, that seems somewhat reasonable given that it's 1960. And that he is, in fact, a restaurant owner. We don't know if this blood was 
ever tested or even collected to be tested. It sounds to me, or at least the way that the story goes, is that the vehicle was cleaned up by the time he becomes a suspect. Right. The other interesting thing, though, is remember, he's hearing these rumors because people were openly talking about him being the person that killed Nancy Eagleson for several days. And then he realizes, oh, they're talking about me. Right. I better do something about this. But if they're not looking into him until a week later, you can't say it's suspicious that his car is clean because some people, that's their weekly routine, especially back then. Well, and this is early December, so we've, we have a minimum of two weeks that have passed by this right. time. And we don't have an exact day. I did have, I did, I do know what the day is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I failed to put it in my notes, but I put it down as early December because what's weird here, Captain, is well, stepping into my office because you're fired again. He does not appear to be a suspect per law enforcement. This is a local suspect. This is the public thinking this dude did it. He goes to the sheriff and says, "Everybody in town saying that I killed Nancy Eagleson," and so the sheriff decides he starts hearing rumors that the townspeople have decided that Virgil Johnson did it. And they're going to go get justice them damn selves. They're going to go find Virgil Johnson, and they're going to lynch him up in the center of town. So Sheriff Keeler decides, you know what? I'm going to have to put your butt in jail, not because I think you did anything, just so that these people don't come in here and kill you. So he throws Virgil Johnson in jail, and then he comes out and tells the village of Paulding and all of Paulding County. I, Sheriff Keeler, I've checked into Virgil Johnson. He's not the guy. We we subjected him to a lie detector test. He passed the poly, and therefore he is not a suspect. Do not harm this man. And they publicly announced that Virgil Johnson is cleared as being the killer of Nancy Eagleson, that he well, is innocent. Yeah, and if he's hearing these rumors, then you know law enforcement is. And then once you start hearing these other rumors of, let's take him to the middle of the town and, and, and hang him, well, you better start doing your due diligence very quickly. And and so, yeah, uh, I, I wish they'd do that more in cases. I mean, look at the Delphi case. I think there's a lot of suspects that have been identified pu- publicly that they could have came out and, and ruled out or in, you know. By late December of 1960, the reward fund for information about Nancy's murder was increased to $6,595. That would be the equivalent of approximately $65,000 today. That's a lot of money for a small town. This reward money was raised by businesses, businessmen, and other community leaders and in hopes of solving the Nancy Eagleson murder in January of 1961. This is where we start to see the case kind of drag on. You know, we talk so much about how the first 48 are so important to any murder investigation. Well, also the first two weeks, the first two months. Now we're getting outside of that world and we're getting beyond that because in January of 1961, Sheriff Keeler is trading and swapping information with a town up in Michigan that experienced a similar murder. Right. So this is where we need to make sure that we give Sheriff Keeler some well-deserved kudos, give him an old attaboy, right? Because this is one thing that most law enforcement agencies did not do in 19, even in 1980 or 1970, let alone 1960. This guy's reaching out to other agencies, other law enforcement agencies and comparing notes and saying, hey, what happened there? We had something that happened here that's similar. Let's discuss. Let's see if we're talking about the same perpetrator. Or is there things in your case, in your investigation that you got right or got wrong and we can learn from that here and apply that to what we are doing in Paulding, Ohio? So we got to give him some credit for reaching out and discussing this with other agencies and other jurisdictions, because again, that is stuff that just did not happen back in that day. Well, reaching out to other jurisdictions, other departments, locking this guy up, clearing people, all this hoopla, that's going to bring us to another suspect. Yes, this is a grown man. His name is Thomas Ball. And the reason that he becomes on the police radar, and this is... To be clear, a law enforcement suspect, not a public suspect. 
he gets on to Sheriff Keeler's radar because in 1961, in February, Thomas Ball is charged with the rape of Janet Bergstrom in Defiance County, Ohio. Now, they're looking at him. He's charged with this rape, with this assault. He's about 30, 31 years of age at this time. And so they start looking at him at in the Nancy case because they see some similarities in their cases. Now, where I will say that I don't think Keeler did a great job on this case is that we will see again here, he questions Thomas Ball about the Nancy Eagleson case. He subjects Thomas Ball to a lie detector test. And Ball, according to Keeler, passes the poly, and he is publicly cleared. The sheriff comes forward and tells everybody this man was not involved in Nancy Eagleson's case. The problem with this is this really seems to be their only one of their few options back then in 1960, especially when they didn't feel like they had great evidence in Nancy's case. So they're using polygraph examinations to determine whether they should continue to investigate an individual for her murder or if they should move on from the individual in Nancy's case. And so they are publicly clearing people based off of the results of these polygraph tests, which we still do in some jurisdictions they still do to this day. And the captain and I don't like it now. And we don't like it back in 1960 either because experts would tell you that the individual that was capable, the type of individual capable of abducting, raping and executing a child very likely could feel no remorse, very likely would not be nervous at all about your questions and very likely could look you in the eyes and tell you whatever it is that you want to hear. Tell you whatever story will get them out of the room from you. And their heartbeat, their heart rate won't budge at all. Well, I like giving somebody a polygraph test to see, like, it's a barometer, really. Are they telling us the truth on anything? Are they being... Are they telling tall tales about everything or just a few things? Just to give a barometer of where this person is, but in no way, shape, or form should you be clearing anybody of the murders because of these tests. Especially somebody like Thomas Ball. So the the charges for the rape and the assault that took place in Defiance County, Ohio, were eventually dismissed, right? And that is what gets him onto the police radar in Paulding County. Right. They look at him for Nancy Eagleson's murder. They give him the polygraph test. He passes it. And Sheriff Keeler says, cleared. And we move on. But here's why you don't move on from somebody like Thomas Ball. Because in 1963, in September, he lured a 19-year-old girl into his hotel room in Detroit, Michigan, and then stabbed and killed that 19-year-old. And so in 1964, he's convicted of that murder. Yeah, this guy's a psychopath. He's capable of anything, really. He gets sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison. And then in 1976, after serving 12 years, he's moved to a psych facility in Detroit, which he escapes from. And then he moves down to Tennessee, where he remains there undercover, undetected, until 2006. He's living under the name of Thomas Fry down in Tennessee. And one day, police Hello? show up knocking on his door down in Tennessee and arrest him and say, this is Thomas Ball who escaped from Michigan back in 1976. So they find him 30 years later. Right. He's eventually paroled in 2007 in Michigan. But for me, Captain, he remains and should remain a suspect in Nancy Eagleson's murder. So much more to get to in part four. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.